Yo, what's up? Dr. Swole here, MD bodybuilder, back with another podcast episode on Swole Radio. Today I'm joined again by Menno Henselmans, who is a world-renowned researcher, coach, and speaker on bodybuilding and strength training. Thanks for being on the show again, Menno. My pleasure, Bill. Last time was good, so happy to uh, talk with you again. So today we're going to be digging into some really fun discussions on muscle group specific training. I think that it's very common. Like it's easy for us on these podcasts to really get into nitty gritty details of programming of, you know, the kind of more, you know, intellectually regarded uh, variables. But I think coming back to just training technique, training anatomy and exercise considerations has a lot of utility for people. And I think that people are really going to enjoy this. So we're going to be going through muscle by muscle and touching on a few things that are going to be specific for each muscle group. This will include sort of the fast versus slow twitch composition of muscles, rep ranges, volumes that might be ideal, as well as the training anatomy. So where sort of the muscles will cross joints and how that affects the ways in which you should train them. So the way I was thinking about the going about this meta was starting off with just the lower body and then moving to the upper body and kind of going from bigger to smaller muscle groups. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I was thinking of just starting off with the quads. So I suppose, yeah, maybe just starting off with uh, your thoughts on the fiber type composition and mm-hmm. kind of rep ranges and volume implications. Right. In general, I think looking at the, the average fast, slow, which fiber composition um, it is iffy because it, it can vary quite a bit between individuals. Mm-hmm. And for most muscle groups, it's actually pretty close to 50-50. Uh, there are not many muscles where it, it differs more than 60-40, 55-45. You know, it's, it's questionable if that really changes much. But within an individual, the differences can be much more striking. And we see, for example, that the preferred racing distances and the preferred running distances um, of runners, like ice skaters and some other sports, they correlate with their muscle fiber um, composition. And generally we see that people are very slow twitch dominant. So they have muscles that are good at contracting for long periods of time, but they're not very good at producing force very fast. We see that those uh, they do better in endurance sports, whereas people with a very fast twitch muscle fiber type composition, they do better at sprinting, for example. Mm-hmm. So th- th- there is definitely something um, in terms of that, that it matters. But what, what I like to do is I basically just see what they're good at because muscle fiber type composition is, is one part. And the quads, I think they're generally, they're close to 50-50. But for some people, they're not. And then if you find that, for example, they can do 12 reps at 80% of 1RM rather than the usual eight or so, then that's an indication they're genetically better at higher reps. And typically, we see that, at least from the few studies we have on this, the trend is that people do better. They also gain more when performing the type of exercise they're good at. There was one Mm. really nice study on this by... Kowagulu et al, or I have no idea how to pronounce that. It was in 2005, I think. And they looked at the ACE genotype. 
And they looked at the DD is basically associated with fast twitch muscle fibers. And II is associated with slow twitch. <clears throat> and they found that when people, uh, people with the DD um, genotype, they did not tend to gain more strength on higher volumes in contrast to the other groups. And so it was a really detailed study design, by the way. And people on the, with the II genotype actually seemed to gain more strength in the 12 to 15, or at least some higher rep range than the lower rep range, I think eight to 12, hmm. which is completely contradictory to the normal response where people generally gain more strength the heavier they train, the lower reps. Mm -hmm. But that, that's interesting and, and you know, it goes to um, support that if you're very good at a certain type of exercise, then probably that's also the, the, the way you should be training. I mean, it makes sense because it allows you to accumulate more volume. And, um, a big difference between, I think, even more, um, more well-established than the difference in muscle growth rates between muscle fiber types is the fatigue rate. So fast twitch muscle fibers fatigue a lot more during exercise. And that's, that's likely going to translate into uh, a lower ability to handle high volumes. Because if you're, you're pushing up your volumes to the max, then you know, if, you, if you fatigue insanely fast, then probably you'll respond better to a bit lower volumes. Whereas if you find that someone is um, presumably very slow twitch dominant or for whatever other reason, maybe high capillary density, for example, um, they have really good work capacity and they do really well at high reps, then probably that's also a good way for them to accumulate volume and they can probably handle more volume. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's actually really interesting. I think, you know, the fact yeah. that there's it emphasizes the importance of individual variation and experimenting with what works. And I think that especially kind of with the quads, there are, there's a lot of, you know, the exercises are quite different and mm -hmm. and really people will diverge a lot in in what they find works well for them. I guess uh, yeah. going. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one, one big thing for the, the quads in, in terms of functional anatomy, um, as you say that people have, uh, there are like different types of exercises. Typically you have like the squat type exercises and the leg extension type exercises. And one really important thing for the quads is that the rectus femoris, the middle head, it does not, it's basically not trained or very poorly trained with squat type movements because it's a biarticulate muscle that spans the knee and the uh, hip. In fact, if you try to raise your knee when you're standing and you try to raise your knee as high up as possible, and then you try to extend your leg, you'll find it's impossible. And that's because the, in part, because the rectus femoris cannot shorten more. So it's, it's already maximally shortened. And at that point it, it cannot go any further. Hmm. So, and the, a, a similar thing happens when it's trying to contract during uh, squats in that you want it to extend the leg, but doing so would flex the hip. So it would pull you back down at the hip, which is counterproductive. So the body cannot effectively recruit the rectus femoris, the middle head of the quads during a squat type movement due to its biarticulate muscle nature. And that means you basically need leg extensions or movement like that. You know, it could be like body weight leg extensions or there are some variants, but you, you can just squat. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. And I think these are the kinds of training anatomy considerations that uh, really helps for people to think about. Uh, 
In terms of just kind of common questions people ask about the quads, what are your thoughts on stance width for quad training? You know, people talk about the, the lateral or medial mm -hmm. sides of your quads. Right. I think those, those things are mostly trivial. The, um, I mean, the, the quads are, other than this, the rectus femoris and middle with its bioarticulate muscle nature, uh, a relatively simple muscle. And especially the other heads, they just, they extend the leg. And research that looks at specific heads, like the teardrop, the VMO compared to the vastus lateralis, very iffy. There's, I think, one or two studies that did find a significant difference, but they used very odd, like squatting, like wall squats with the, a boater ball in between the knees. You know, it's like it does not apply to someone just doing heavy back squats with a barbell. Uh, most studies have not found significant effects. Stance width in general um, does not appear to have a very big effect on, on what goes on in, in anything during the squats. If you go really wide, you activate the, the glutes more because they're um, abductors. So especially the outer glutes, so cleaning ladies, you may walk by a few times. Mm -hmm. But um, other than that, for the quads, as long as the range of motion is not massively affected, probably there's not going to be uh, a big difference in, in many of the muscle groups. In general, for a squat, actually, most research that looks at differences other than range of motion finds very small differences in muscle activity. Like even between front squats, low bar squats, mm. uh, it's, it's quite minor. And even the range of motion differences are a lot smaller in terms of joint angles than they appear. Like it looks like a very different exercise and it feels very different. But in terms of like EMG, like electromyography recordings of muscles, you don't see much difference at all when uh, you compare very different types of squats. I think the, the main difference is actually for different squats is more an injury risk because you, you definitely load certain joints more than others. Yeah. But the muscles are, it's still the same muscles performing the same functions during a very similar movement pattern. You know? mm -hmm. And then any tips for say movements like Bulgarian split squats or lunges to emphasize quads? Um, during those movements, I like to go deep because most people cannot squat as to grass and it can be difficult to achieve stretch mediated hypertrophy in the quads because especially mm -hmm. if you're doing, for example, you have to do low bar squats if you don't have strong knees, then it, it's very difficult to have an exercise. Like most leg extension machines, they don't, they don't cut it in yeah. terms of really getting closing yeah. the knee. So you want something in there that, that really closes the, the knee angles and lunges and the like are perfect for that because everybody can do a deep lunge. Nobody wants to do a deep lunge. <laughs> Me included. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I hate them too. <laughs> the probably the exercise group I hate the most. Yeah, yeah. Everything like unilateral <laughs> lower body movements, split squat lunges, terrible, but also very effective. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, so those were some gold tips, and this is going to be a great episode. Just moving on uh, to the hamstrings then. Um, so I think, yeah. So what are your thoughts on hamstrings in terms of the, um, you know, people commonly say that hamstrings are fast twitch and respond well to lower volumes. Yeah. Interestingly, I also thought they were fast twitch and uh, there were even a lot of quotes of like 70% fast twitch. Mm -hmm. and I think in my very first article, I also mentioned 70%, but 
There have been other studies showing very um, or far smaller differences, and some even finding they're not fat twitch. But I think it's offset in part um, because anecdotally, they definitely appear to be fast twitch in, the, in terms of not responding as well to high reps and fatiguing mm -hmm. a lot. Like for me, if I do leg curls, for example, I have to strip off a ton of weight if I want to get to 30 reps. Like I'm talking way below a third of one RM. It's like, it, it never happens. I strip off weight and I can do like a few more reps, strip off more weight. And it's like, I still can only do 12. What happened? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it may be because that they have the highest proportion, I think, or a very large proportion, at least of two uh, B fibers, which are the most uh, explosive fibers. So even if they're not massively fast twitch, they do have a very large proportion of the, the sort of ultra hard hitting fibers. Um, mm -hmm. But whether that has big implications for how to train, um, I mean, I still think it's best to just see which rep ranges you're strongest at. Like for me, I think it's not going to be very productive. And I, I, anecdotally, I don't gain strength at all, like barely, if I do leg curls for high reps. Like I have to use super low weights, and it, there's it's very hard to improve. Even one rep per session is difficult. Mm -hmm. Whereas if I train heavy, I can I can even do leg curls for like sets of four, and feels very comfortable. Mm. It's not like a leg extension where, uh, for one, it can pose knee problems, but also it feels awkward or a lateral raise, you know, four and lateral raise is like just super <laughs> awkward. Yeah. Uh, in any case, the, the most important thing probably of the hamstrings is the, the functional anatomy in that the, um, the, the short head of the biceps femoris is the only head that's a pure um, knee flexor. So like lateral type movements and the other heads also function at the hip. So unlike the quads where you have just the one head, here most of the heads also function at the hip. So like reverse hyperextensions, back extensions, Romanian deadlifts, full throughs, those kind of movements, hip hinge movements, they train most of the heads of the hamstrings very well. And you're gonna need to do both. But again, you, you actually get the best sort of full bang for your buck with a lateral movement. Just like for the quads, a leg extension is actually probably the most complete quad developer, not a squat type movement. Um, if you have both, um, you also still want, that also takes care of stretch media perfectly, I think, because uh, a recent study actually found that seated laterals induce much more growth in the hamstrings than lying laterals, even though both were done for full run. Um, mm -hmm. So full range of motion does not mean you're actually training the muscle at long lengths and the long muscle length is what really matters um, likely for muscle growth because then you stimulate uh, passive tension on the muscle and that's still it's passive but it's still produced in, in part by titan for example the um which is still the the muscle and part of the muscle that grows it's still contractile uh, tissue mm -hmm. so it, it, it's likely that if you're doing Romanian deadlifts or some movement that really stretches the hamstrings well um, during hip hinge, that also takes care of much of the stretch media vertically, which mm -hmm. is it's good because that's also what you want to uh, achieve for pretty much every muscle group. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as just as a, a side question, I think this is a common you know thought in training anatomy considerations where you want to think about having the muscle in a stre more stretched position where kind of with the lying leg curl idea where you just, your your muscle isn't as stretched. Uh, is there still an application, do you think, specific applications for including 
those other muscle uh, exercises, which are not as stretched, perhaps? Yeah, definitely. Uh, in general, at different muscle lengths, you stimulate different muscle fibers because every muscle fiber kind of a slightly different length tension relation. And in, ge in general, in different joint positions with different exercises, you have more or less tension. So you may stimulate um, A, different uh, muscle fibers, and may B, uh, it may also induce slightly different types of fatigue. Like if you uh, only um, very stretchy type training, like you only do, you only train at long muscle lengths, then you may also suffer a lot of muscle damage. Yeah. Like research on this is actually not super clear because a recent study found, for example, that uh, eccentric muscle contractions, which are generally thought to also induce more muscle damage, may actually not do more muscle damage. It's just that they're more unaccustomed. So we know that a new training stimulus induces a lot of muscle damage and you get very sore if you do something new, typically. Mm -hmm. So they found that after eight weeks or so of habituation to the eccentric training, it, it did not um, have that effect anymore. So it might be in part true for training at long muscle lengths as well. Uh, still, if um, you, know, you have to wait eight weeks before you can ramp up the volume, that's in itself a downside. So I think it's definitely, you don't want to just train at long muscle lengths. Uh, I think you, you want to split it up. Just make sure that you are at least training at long muscle lengths. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, yeah. I think I like that approach where you really want to think about having variety in your exercise selection, but just keeping in mind these kinds of training anatomy considerations so that you kind of touch on them and that you include something, you know, right. with the, you know, with the, with the hamstrings, including a curl, a, a curl type movement and with the quads, including a leg extension type movement. Yeah. Moving on, maybe we could talk about glutes then. So I think this will be of interest to a lot of people listening um, in terms of, yeah, just the, uh, the sort of rep ranges and volumes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Glutes are, um, uh, one thing that differs a lot between men and women, because I think one big difference is that unless uh, a guy wants round glutes, then they, they typically don't, or I don't have my clients do hip abduction type movements. Whereas women, they typically want round glutes. And so they want to train the side glutes very well. Oh, yeah. And then you want to have hip abduction movements in there. Uh, again, you also want stretch media hypertrophy. So one thing that a downside that I see of a lot of popular programs now for women that don't want bigger quads, which for one is uh, I'm always a little skeptical of, like if you actually you're getting quads that are too big uh, and it's not due to body fat, which is a big if, yeah. Uh, then yes, you, you, you want to cut down the volume. But until that happens, um, I generally say probably you still want to squat because if you get your quads get too big, it's easy to take care of that. Uh, unless you have really good genes and you really need to stay small, like commercial model or something. So yeah, the, the take home message is generally that uh, you want to achieve, if you want maximum glute development, you need stretch mediated hypertrophy. And it's, it's difficult to achieve that with anything other than squat, really. Uh, like I'm a fan of, if you do hip thrust, you do them from a deficit, but it's, it's, it's very difficult to, to set up. A lot of people, a lot of my clients complain that, um, for one, it, it often takes like two benches and you need to, they need to be stable or you need something even better than a bench because it's a bench is typically too high. So, uh, and then when you get really strong, it's also very difficult to get into the position. So it's, it's just all pretty tricky. It's a pain in the butt. Um, yeah, that's really. 
Like it's 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 pain in the butt to get a pain in the butt. But anyway, the uh, squats are are much easier that way because you you get a good stretch um, in the bottom position, and it's it's not that hard to get full range of motion at the hip, especially with a low bar squat. Most people actually reach. Uh, if you do a even if you're very flexible, if you do a wide stance low bar squat, you're pretty much gonna uh, maximally lengthen the glutes. Mm -hmm. um, or at least that get very good stretch medial hypertrophy. There's also one study that's worth mentioning. Uh, it might be worth mentioning, uh, which actually directly compared squats and hip thrusts and found that squats result in more glute growth. Hmm. And uh, it's by Barbalio et al. Martez Barbalio et al. Who has done some very shady research that's all but called out for frauding. So it's it's questionable and the the. Paulo Gentile is his supervisor, I think, and he was also in a study. He's very anti-hip thrusts, so he also is not the most unbiased person to conduct this kind of study. Um, and the study itself had some funky, like, if, if the study was legit, it was probably women on gear, because they mm -hmm. had very um, obscene numbers. Um, but, you know, it, it may be worth mentioning. I think in light of the recent research on stretch media hypertrophy, it, it might actually be legit, or part of it's legit and they frauded some other data with it, you know, but um, yeah, I mean, there, there's at least some, uh, some uh, data that that's on this. And uh, other than that, if you want to isolate the glutes, what you can do, you can take the hamstrings out of the movement by bending the knee, because again, it's, it shortens the hamstrings excessively and mm. um, they can't produce much force anymore. So you, you can isolate the glutes better. That's also what a hip thrust effectively does. Mm -hmm. um, other than that, you, you probably have the bases covered. Um, again, for hip abductions, you can also um, make them uh, achieve more stretch by bending over forward because you uh, stretch the glutes that way. Mm. Uh, the problem, though, is that most machines are uh, really unfortunately because they're made for women that want a bigger butt, but they um, don't have heavy weights. So a lot of women will max out the hip duction machines. Yeah. Uh, and then what you can do is, um, and that was, actually that's probably also a better way to achieve stretch media hypertrophy is to do the hip abductions with a cable like lying on the sides. Like a lot of women do this standing. I don't know why, because it's super awkward. It's much better to do the exercise lying, but I guess people don't want to lie down on the gym floor. Um, and the benefit also of lying is that you can do it on a bench and then you can have your leg dip below. So your active leg dips below the, the passive leg, basically uh -huh. dips below your hip. So you get a full stretch that way. I think that's also uh, an exercise I really like that's very underrated. Yeah, no, I love that. Yeah, just taking advantage of you know gravity and mechanics to really you know, affect stretches mm. or hit hit angles that you want. This is science in action. Um, so yeah, moving on then, I maybe just also touching on the uh, lower back while we're talking about glutes. Right, lower back is, is an interesting muscle because if you want to maximally train it and you want to fully develop it, I think, and I think most men in particular actually do want this because many men want a thick back and then if you talk about back fitness, a lot of people think traps, but it's not for only the top part. And those big two sort of anacondas running up over your back, 
that also make you not have, um, you know, if you're skinny and you don't have big erector spinae, those are those big muscles, then you have the visible uh, spine from the outside, which looks not aesthetically appealing and looks more like you're, <laughs> you're starving, you know, like malnourished. Um, you, you don't want that, of course, so, or at least most people don't. And the re to, to, to not have that is to develop the erector spinae. And those are like two thirds of the back. So in terms of back thickness, most people should probably actually more think about erector spinae growth rather than traps. The trap is nice. You sometimes actually see that on someone that doesn't do squats or deadlifts and doesn't train much lower body. Not only do they have chicken legs relative to their upper body, but they also have very odd back where it's sort of a normal back and that sort of really big top on it. Mm -hmm. Really want a thick whole of completely thick back, then the erector spinae actually much more influential probably. The problem is that if you want to train those, and especially if you want to start immediate hypertrophy, you need dynamic exercises that also train them at long muscle lengths. But if you do that with squats or deadlifts, most people get injured. Like there, there is some controversy about if you can left your, if butt wink is actually a problem during squats, I definitely think it is. Uh, purely anecdotally, Agreed. like so no, many people get injured. If you have people with back problems, squats, and they, they have butt wink, many more of them have pain than when they don't have butt wink. So purely going by pain alone, it's already, uh, it's, it's at least pretty clear. Now you could say, well, pain doesn't mean anything. Uh, strictly speaking, that's true. But uh, even if only practically, um, it, it's not very practical to always have pain when you squat. So the, the problem then is, well, you need something like a back extension to actually train the spine, like, you know, over dynamic movements, uh, but that can be injurious. Um, recently, I've implemented more actual back extensions for high reps with a control tempo in my programs. I'm actually also doing them myself now. I haven't experienced anyone even reporting any back problems while doing those. Mm -hmm. so I think those are actually also underrated uh, if you want big erector spinae. The cost benefits quite poor though, because it's, it's still a, a body parts in the back that if it gets injured, it's really bad. Like back problems are just a, a nightmare to deal with. And it's very, they're also quite difficult in terms of recovery because if you just sit for a prolonged period, it can aggravate it. Some sleeping postures can aggravate it. Um, so if it becomes a chronic injury, it's, it's really, really bad. So in terms of the risk reward, it's, it's not great, um, maybe. But if you do want bigger growth, then you actually, yeah, you, get, you need to do back extensions probably. Mm. There's also a study actually on this, I'm pretty sure. They found that adding back extension at least induced more growth in the spine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I also, I guess, I also like the idea of having something like that in more for the um, accessing other rep ranges as well, because I think a lot of mm -hmm. people find that for something like deadlifts, it it's very taxing mentally and yeah. just overall physically to try to go for you know high rep ranges like Definitely. fifteen reps yeah. or so or something like that. And Those are also, the most hardcore individuals. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I also liked uh, the point that you made about the thinking about, you know, the anacondas running up and down your back, because I think a lot of people think about their erector spinae as just the little Christmas tree at the bottom, but it really goes all the way up and down and adds a lot to back thickness and um, that you can't necessarily get if you only trained your lats, right, for, for your back thickness. Yeah. So, yeah, that was a really good piece. And then... Um, 
if we could touch on calves then as well for the lower body. Um, I guess the interesting thing about calves is, uh, yeah, that you're looking at the gastroc versus soleus and how the 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 soleus doesn't necessarily cross the the knee joint. Yep, exactly. So the the practical implication of that is that the soleus, which is the sort of the muscle underneath, which is exceptionally slow twitch, although a recent study found it still grew similarly from high and low reps, although it was an untrained individual. So it's, it's, it's questionable if that really extrapolates fully to, um, to a trained individual. And there's also, based on the Russian literature and the Kafka literature, probably if you want to induce specific type one um, fiber growth, you need to train without relaxation. So we have quite convincing evidence that if you do high reps without relaxation in between the reps, so basically just uh, touch and go bench pressing, maybe even not full ROM training, uh, especially if you do it with occlusion, then you can actually specifically target the type one muscle fibers. Hmm. But if you just do normal reps and you keep breathing and there may be some pauses, then it's, it's generally a pretty trivial difference in terms of uh, fast versus slow twitch muscle fibers that you, you train. It might still matter over the long run because if we look at powerlifters versus bodybuilders, we do see that powerlifters have very preferential type two muscle growth, whereas bodybuilders have more equal growth. Mm -hmm. So, you know, over the long run, it, it may add up. In any case, um, in terms of biomechanics, the soleus is the, the uh, plantar flexor. So like calf raise, forms calf raises, and it's always active. But the gastrox also span across the knee. So they assist the hamstrings during lateral type movements. And that actually has very significant implications that we have a couple of very good studies on uh, that show it really matters in terms of muscle activation and muscle growth. So if you do a, a calf raise movement with the knees bent, you're only training the soleus, like basically only. And if you do a, a calf raise with the leg straight, then you train the gastrocnemius as well. Now, probably you, you want to do a bit of both because the soleus is, is exceptionally slow twitch dominant. At least it probably means it can handle quite a lot of volume. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I do like to have a seated calf raise in there, typically for somewhat higher reps to add some extra volume to that muscle group. And then for the gastrox, it also matters during lateral movements because we actually have a study showing that if you um, basically curl your toes up, so uh, dorsiflex, if you curl your toes up towards your, your knee rather than straightening your leg, pointing them down, plantar flexion, then you achieve significantly higher um, uh, muscle activity in the gastrocnemius during the lateral because they are too short if you extend them down. Like you, you shorten the gastrocnemius, they can't contribute much. Mm -hmm. And we have a study showing that this improves strength development which is interesting because you would not necessarily think that, you know, if you're always training them without the gastrocnemius, you're always a bit weaker, but the strength gains should be similar, right? Mm -hmm. But actually it, it matters. So again, training in the way that your like performance is maximal is also the best way to train for uh, long-term gains. That generally seems to be true. Mm -hmm. um, Although on a tangent, a recent meta-analysis for Schifferlein found that even though it enhances performance acutely, it doesn't improve long-term strength gains. Um, and based on one study, also not muscle growth. So that's, hmm. but that's a, a bit different. The, the mechanism of action is very different. In any case, 
Um, for the gas products, it's also interesting that we have a study, a recent study, I think from last year, found that food positioning actually matters. Hmm. I mean, the, just a straight normal food position maximized growth, but there was a trend to have uh, more growth in the lateral versus medial heads of the gas rocks with the toes out versus in. And you can actually feel this if you do high rep calf raises and you get a, a pump and you have to, your, your feet, your toes inward versus outward, you can actually feel that one head more active than the other. And this, this actually seems to um, not only result in, in terms of EMG research and more activity in that head, but also in more muscle growth. So that may be for advanced trainees, it's a variation I like to use. Like you have some um, calf raise with toes in, some with toes out. Most of your time should be spent with just straight foot position because just like with a bench press, the flat horizontal press, it's like you, you maximize the total amount of muscle fibers that you engage. Mm -hmm. For advanced trainees, you can play around with fancy footwork to um, really max out your gains in every muscle fiber. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, those are some really good points. And yeah, I think good takeaway is, you know, including a variety of uh, the different um, sort of stance widths and or like uh, angles um, and also with the seated and straight leg uh, calf raises, which is like a mm -hmm. classic question in bodybuilding. <laughs> So yeah, wrapping up the lower body, I think that was those are some amazing points here. I like I just love this discussion because um, you know as as a radiologist, I'm basically an, an anatomist where you know on MRIs I'm just constantly looking at muscles and their insertions, you know, looking for tears, looking for um, tendinopathies and those kinds of things. So it's really fun for me. Anatomy is like my favorite part. So anyways, um, as a little aside, I just want to plug Menno's personal training course, which is an online PT course, which is very high level and very well regarded. So for anyone out there looking to upgrade their knowledge or up their personal training game, definitely check that out. Um, where can people find that, Menno? Uh, on our websites, you'll find it all, menoensimals.com. Uh, probably best also is, uh, thank you kindly, by the way, uh, probably best is if you just go to my website, you can first do a free email course. And if you like that kind of content, then uh, you can maybe upgrade to the, the real deal. Uh, but you'll, you'll, you'll find it all on the website. All yeah. the information when it starts. This is, there's only one per um, 10 months or so with limited availability. So, Yeah, get it while you can. Links will be in the description. Um, so yeah, anyways, moving on to the uh, upper body now, getting into some, uh, some, some interesting talk about starting off with the chest, say. Uh, I think the like classic uh, question in chest is the, you know, upper versus lower pecs. And uh, I guess the interesting anatom anatomy here is that you have your clavicular and sternal heads of the, the pectoralis. So you have parts of the chest that, you know, insert in your clavicle versus the inside of your uh, sternum. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the upper and the lower uh, pecs. And the, the general bodybuilding wisdom of incline for upper packs, decline for lower packs appears to be true. But the big catch is that it doesn't enhance muscle activity in those regions. It just decreases it in others. We now have a few studies on this. I think one recent study did found a small increase, but I don't think it was maximal training. So I think that's trivial if you train close to failure. Um, 
But basically, it means that if you're doing an incline press, it's not like you're working your upper pecs more. You're just working your lower pecs less. Mm. And there, because of that, I generally want people to do mostly horizontal, like my clients, I want them to do mostly horizontal type um, shoulder flexion. So flies, I'm a big fan of Bayesian flies in which you, you hold the handles like this instead of this, because it's more directly in line with the chest fibers. Most people can really feel that, uh, well, it feels better at least. And um, because you should be able to get better leverage, for it's um, at least theoretically, the body should have an easier time recruiting the back fibers. Mm. And for everyone, super much. And for everyone lifts and listening, uh, Menno just demonstrated the pronated grip versus a more neutral grip. So right. kind of like hand palms facing down versus palms facing each other. Right. If you do like a dumbbell fly, then you don't have a pronated grip. You have a more neutral grip. So I like to have the more bench press like pronated grip, the palms pointing at each other basically. Um, and the, the thing is, if you want to get a flat kind of press or fly, then and you also want to arch your back, your upper back, which I think is, is good because you can increase subacromial space width by uh, extending the thoracic spine. So basically arching the upper back up, pushing the chest up if you're lying on a bench and retracting the scapulae. It increases subacromial space width and basically reduces the, the amount of impingement you get. And at least anecdotally, most people experience less pain, shoulder pain when bench pressing or when doing basically any kind of pressing or chest movement while on a bench. So a lot of people notice for the bench press, the barbell bench press, but a lot of people don't realize that why they do it. So they don't realize they should also do this for a fly, even a chest press machine, if your shoulder blades are fixed against a bench. If they're not fixed, like during a push-up, then they can move freely and there's generally not an issue. Generally, you also find that if they can move freely during a push-up or a cable chest press, which is actually also an exercise I really like, then it's not an issue. And most people don't have as much shoulder pain during those. So also, if your shoulders are injured, consider that you probably want more movements in there where you can have your shoulder blades move freely. Now, the, the thing is, because you want to arch your back and you want like a flat 90 degree kind of press slash fly, ideally, uh, not, not fully because you'll get, uh, most people still get impingement problems if they do like a true guillotine press. You want a, a, like a 15 degree incline. So I'm a big fan of like 15 degree incline dumbbell bench press, for example, for the pecs. Mm. You get a really good stretch. You don't get that same level of stretch with a barbell. Um, you do need to train with full ROM. A lot of people don't get full range of motion. Uh, lots of people, guys at least, like women are much better at this than guys. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty confident in saying, like men, they, they think the bench press ends when the, the elbows are in line with the body. It's like, nope, they can go quite a bit further down. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot, of, a lot of times you see, when I see clients with really high dumbbell overhead or bench press weights, I'm like, gotta check the ROM, because um, good chance you can actually go down quite a bit further and get much better gains. Um, yeah, so I'm a big, big fan of that. Barbell bench press is still good. Big advantage of the barbell is that it's much easier to monitor progressive overload. Uh, flies, I'm a big fan of. And for advanced trainees, maybe you can play around with some incline decline work. I'm not a big fan of it, especially not decline, because if anything, most most people, guys and women, uh, but mostly guys, because they 
they care more about their pecs, have problems with the upper pecs. And there are not so many guys that are like, yeah, my lower pecs are really lagging, you know? And mm -hmm. I think that's because they uh, actually sort of trans into the, uh, the front delts as well. I think a lot of people spend too much time training their lower uh, pecs. Also, if, if they do crossovers, they actually, if you look at the, the angle they're doing them, it's a decline kind of fly. Mm -hmm. So yeah, they're really doing them downwards. So they spend much too much time training their lower pecs and their front delts. Mm -hmm. And those are muscles that are really easy to train a lot. And the result of, if you do that a lot, then your upper pecs are going to be going to fall behind. And aesthetically, that's actually quite a big concern because you get these shoulders that are not rounded because the, the front delts are more developed and your chest is like big at the top, but it sort of sunks inward, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so it's um, actually think that front raises are an exercise that you basically only want to do if you really can't do much else. And for some women, for example, women that have breast implants, sometimes I have them do front raise type movements. But even then, I do have them do a full ROM front raise rather than just a standard one. So that's an exercise I, you know, there's not such thing as a useless exercise in theory, but in practice, front raises are pretty useless. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think I'm with you on that one. I don't include front raises in my programs virtually ever. Um, Another classic question bodybuilding is uh, the inner versus outer pecs. What are your thoughts on being able to isolate those? Yeah, I don't think there's much difference. Um, we don't have a lot of good research on this. But purely anatomically speaking, like the fibers run pretty much their entire direction. So you're, I mean, there, there is some evidence for regional differentiation and muscle fibers that don't fan across the full length of the muscle. Hmm. I'm not sure if that evidence also exists for the pecs specifically, because they're not, you know, the muscle fibers aren't that long. I think it's mostly in the hamstrings that we see that, which makes sense. The hamstrings are incredibly complex as far as the muscles go. So yeah, I'm not, I'm not convinced there's uh, going to be any, especially not a big difference in terms of like mid, mid pecs. I think most people, when they, they think the full contraction is more mid pecs, they just get the pump and they feel it more. And I think in general, people have a hard time discerning between like where front delt and upper pack really, uh, and where upper and lower pack, you know, really differentiate to begin with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I agree with that. And then in terms of um, rep ranges and volumes, uh, chess is classically known to, you know, respond well to high, high weights and lower volumes. Mm -hmm. Yep, I think that's, that's generally uh, true. Um, I think, again, you want to experiment, see what your strongest at. But overall, they, the chest is relatively fast twitch dominant, and the triceps even more so on average. So theoretically, at least, um, there should be a small edge to some heavier work. There are also muscle groups, at least pressing, that respond really well to um, heavy, heavy intensity, high intensity work in practice, because like a row or a pull down it's quite difficult to do for a free RM, but a bench press is perfect for a one to three RM. So it's also just practically very easy to implement some high intensity lifting for those muscles. Yeah, yeah, no, I think the practicality point is a really interesting one. How like, how much of this, you know, is just because of uh, kind of almost convenience of the movements and in, in influencing people's uh, training patterns. But yeah, mm -hmm. like in any case, that makes a lot of sense. Moving on to talk about the back, 
so when we talk about the back, I mean, it's pretty complex, but um, maybe starting yeah. to focus on the lats. And... Yeah, the, the back is uh, definitely, I think it's it, one big point about the back is you want to differentiate between all the muscle groups. Like you, should, you already mentioned the lats, that's, that's good. You want to differentiate between lats, rear delts, traps, and then between the traps, you have upper, middle, lower. Those are quite distinct. And then you have the erector spinae, which it's like most people sort of consider it lower body, uh, which makes practical sense because you generally train it on lower body days, if you have upper lower split at least. Um, but you know, if you're, it's more like we already mentioned, it's actually part of the upper body and a big part of the back is the erector spinae. Uh, I should mention I have a hard stop in, in four minutes, but uh, we can finish this up uh, another time mm -hmm. after the lats. Um, for the lats, they're a pretty complex muscle, although in practice, you basically want to have two kinds of movement patterns, which are adduction and um, extension. So I recently posted an article actually on my favorite exercise for the lats. It's, it's, you know, a lot of people post an exercise like this is my favorite exercise and I think this is the best exercise, but biomechanically speaking, lat players actually check all of the boxes. Like the sticking point is at the right position, the raise of motion is perfect, it's, it, it takes all the boxes for maximum muscle tension in the lats across their entire range of motion, yeah. uh, including stretch mediated vertically. So uh, those, those obviously I like a lot. It's like a full range of motion, kneeling, straight arm pull down with body movement. Um, so a lot of people are like, it's just a straight arm pull down. Yes, with body, bull, body, with body movement while kneeling to make sure it gets better. <laughs> mm -hmm. In any case, um, you, it's, it's, while it's theoretically perfect, you also want something like a wide pull down or a pull up type movement because there's at least some research showing that the uh, adduction, so like wider grip type pull down movement, will train the lower lats more. So those muscle fibers um, have better leverage for adduction. So they, you know, they, they bring the elbows in like this, whereas the more upper fibers, they basically curl around. The shoulder and then oh, nice. pull you arm down, so you can you can really visualize it like you you can that's actually sweet. you have the luxury yeah, of seeing awesome. the actual muscle fibers in MRI and stuff. But um, a lot of people think the lats are sort of behind, but they actually they need to go to the front to be able to pull the arms mm -hmm. down. Mm -hmm. And that also actually is why the lats they don't have a moment arm, which means they can't function uh, after even after like 120 degrees. So when your elbow goes further up than about this, like further up here, the lats actually cannot do much. So mm -hmm. that's with most uh, pull-on or pull-up type movements, uh, with pull-ups it's better because they can still adduct, but they cannot um, extend the shoulder. So with most of those movements, you actually don't get lat tension in the fully stretched position. You don't get it anyway because you're hanging straight down. It's like the bottom of the chin up. But um, it means that during a lap prayer or a pullover type movement, you don't want to really go into that shoulder dislocation kind of range where you're really maximizing the stretch. The stretch in that case is on other muscles and um, especially connective tissue. So it's a lot more injurious, at least anecdotally. And it's, um, it, it probably doesn't add anything for the lats. You actually lose some muscle tension when you go that, that far. Um, rows, on the other hand, have the opposite problem where if you do uh, first of all, you don't get a good stretch because you're only getting like 90 degrees of lap movement. 
-hmm. But then when the elbow goes behind the body, again, because the, the lats, they, they spent around, they, they cannot hyperextend mm. the elbows, right? Mm. Because they actually, during, if your elbows are way behind your body, then theoretically, uh, flexing the lats would bring them forward. Uh -huh. It brings the organ yeah. and insertion to each other. Mm -hmm. So that's also why in the bottom position of a bench press, the lats can actually help you get the weight up. Like it's, it's probably not a big force contribution percentage wise, um, but they have the opposite kind of function that they normally have. Mm -hmm. So um, I think rows are actually really bad. It's like a standard row for the lats is just a really bad exercise because you, you don't get a good stretch. And then at the top, you again lose muscle tension. So you get neither a good stretch nor a good full contraction. Now you could do like crock rows where you only get the elbow up to the um, in line with your body. Then it's like, yeah, it, it's still, why not just do like diagonal row or something then you get better range of motion and it's like otherwise similar. Uh, I'm a big fan of high rows though, but that's for other muscle groups that we should get into next time because mm -hmm. I have to uh, jump into my next call. Yeah, so anyways, that was a really enlightening discussion. I think everyone's going to benefit a lot from that, Menno. And um, I'm look, really looking forward to getting onto the muscle, smaller muscle groups on our next episode. So likewise. Yeah. So thanks again. Thank and we'll set it up via email. Yes. Thanks, right, man. See ya. That's all for now, guys. Thanks for listening. I am available on a very limited basis for one-on-one -on -one coaching. I'm not cheap, but if you are really serious about taking your physique to the next level, DM me the word coaching on Instagram. For more science-based bodybuilding content, look up Dr. Swole on YouTube, and we'll see you next time.